Okay, good morning, everyone. Can we uh, turn to first, or sorry, Second Peter? I keep saying First Peter after like six months of that letter. We're in Second Peter, chapter one. If you can turn to verse five. Second Peter one, verse five. Why don't we uh, stand as our custom and read together from the scriptures? Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this rich letter, and we know how blessed we were to learn from you in 1 Peter, and we're once again blessed to learn from you in the second letter that Peter wrote. He deals with a lot of different subject matter, Lord, in this letter because he's dealing with different issues. Issues that apply to our church today, not only in the secular culture we live in, but also in our own lives as Christians and how we relate to you. Today's message is really, really not so much about evangelism or about the world out there. It's about us and where we're at, where we're at with you, God. I pray your spirit would move in this church and start to speak to all of us, including myself, the areas of our lives where we need to be encouraged and uh, and also where we need to grow. And I just pray to you that, yeah, just work in us right now and, and that we're sensitive to you in that work. So we look forward to our time together as a family in Christ's name. Please sit down. Thanks. Normally I give a little bit of an introduction. Today we're just going to jump right in. Notice that in verse 5, Peter begins by saying, Now for this very reason also. What Peter is doing here, of course, is linking some additional instruction with what he had just previously taught in verse 4, which you will remember from last week all had to do with the magnificent promises that God had granted us the minute we became Christians by receiving Jesus Christ as our God and Savior, Promises that led not only to us receiving his divine nature in verse 4, but his divine power in verse 3. So last week's sermon was really all about God's role in our Christian journey from the moment we become Christians and, and continuing on as he provides us with everything we need to become spiritually mature through the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. Beginning in verse 5, however, Peter switches to our role within the Christian journey. So God has his, and we have ours. And he starts to lay out what's expected from us as followers of him. And what we're going to learn from Peter today is that even though we are initially saved by grace alone, we are not to sit back and become complacent in how we live out and express that new relationship in Christ. We are to make every effort to come alongside what God has already done in our lives. 
And so Peter begins in verse 5 by saying, For this reason also apply all diligence. And then he begins to list out seven characteristics or attributes that he wants us to pursue and possess in relation to what God's already given us. Commentaries call this list the staircase of faith or a ladder of faith. So if you want to put a mental picture in your head, you're going to have those two images. So let's deal with the first characteristic. Moral excellence. What does that mean? He wants you and I to diligently apply moral excellence to our lives. The Greek uh, word is virtue, uprightness. It's used to define the proper fulfillment of something. So for a knife to have moral excellence would be to cut and cut well. For a horse, it would be to run and to run well. So what does it mean for a Christian to have moral excellence? Well, what's really great is that we get a glimpse into this in verse 3. Because Peter defines Jesus' characteristics as uh, two characteristics of Jesus. One that he's called us by his own glory and excellence. The same word for, as excellence in verse 5. For us then, to, well, to be morally excellent, we are to strive to possess the same virtues and qualities as Jesus Christ himself. You want to know what it is to be moral excellent? Line up with Jesus Christ and what he holds to be valuable, true, and the way he thinks and the way he lives. The Apostle Paul understood this in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Strive for moral excellence, Paul says. You can copy me, but remember who I copied first. This means then, after salvation, reorientating our lives around what Jesus would see as virtuous. Looking to see what he thinks is morally and ethically right. And starting to strive for those characteristics. In many instances, this will be a huge departure from what we used to think before we were saved. But it also requires a huge departure from what we currently think as we are saved. Because none of us automatically, even as Christians, line up with everything God thinks. Yes, we're forgiven of sin, but we have a pattern of old thinking, of old life to overcome. And so as we get put into different situations, we think, oh, how would Jesus think about this? And what would he do here? And so on. And we're to pattern ourselves after him and strive for those same virtues. Can I give you an example I think is really powerful? Zacchaeus in Luke 19. Zacchaeus is a tax collector. What's he done his whole life? Basically, he's extorted people. He's took money from the Jewish people, given it to the Romans as part of his job, but he's gone above and beyond, and he's stolen from people, his own people, his own Jewish people, to get wealthy. And tax collectors were wealthy. Levi, when he became a Christian, when Jesus called him, went to his house, they had a massive party there. He had a giant place, and he could hold lots of people. He had done well as a tax collector. But listen to... Zacchaeus' words when he becomes saved and he reorients himself around what grace has done in his life. He says this, Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Why? 
this guy is showing genuine repentance by reorientating his life to the virtues that Christ would see as commendable. And Jesus says, I'm I buy in exactly with what you're saying, Zacchaeus. You're right on the money. And see, for us, that's scary sometimes, right? Because it means leaving behind what, what we are familiar with in terms of our thinking and what we're accustomed to. That means then to be, to, that we're going to have to face potential rejection from those around us who used to think like us, that who had their version of moral excellence, and now we take our cues from Jesus. We're going to have to take a stand for Jesus Christ in certain situations that might cause some tension. But we're called to morally excellent. I'll give you one that God's been working in, in my own life. And for whatever reason, it comes up over and over and over again. But uh, my, one of the things that happened in my past before as a Christian, and even when I became a Christian, is I love retaliation. I love it. I love to get justice. If you do me wrong, I'm going to get you wrong. Do you wrong as well. And the thing about me is I'm very quick on my feet with my sarcasm. I'm very quick with my mouth, very quick at my, at my words, and I know how to put people in their place very quickly, all in a very humoristic way, or aggressive way. I've had so many opportunities in the last month alone in public, from parking lots to uh, uh, walking past people's houses and neighborhoods, where I've been lashed out up for various things that I supposedly did. And everything in my flesh rises up to retaliate and tell them off. And the Spirit says, wait a minute, Andrew, I've got moral excellence for you. I've got a new way for you to think. Because who knows, they might end up one day in your church. And they're going to go, I remember that guy, and I'm out of here. <laughs> Second category, knowledge. It says, in your moral excellence, knowledge. There's two different words for knowledge. Uh, in this in this letter, epignosis and gnosis. Epignosis is theoretical knowledge, okay, intellectual knowledge. Gnosis is more practical knowledge, hands-on. So the knowledge here is talking about practical knowledge, common sense knowledge, knowing what to do in a particular situation based on what you know from Scripture and what God's taught you. It's the ability to make wiser decisions in life as a Christian because of what God's revealed to you. And you and I have met people like that. Where when, you, when you're going through a situation in life, you, these, these people seem to always have an answer from the scriptures on how to handle life situations. They know how to parent. They know how to handle money. They know how to be in marriage. They know how to handle conflict. And they can turn to the Bible and say, God says this, God says that, God says this. And let me tell you how he's worked these things out in my own life. Practical knowledge coming from the scriptures and how to live life out. And Peter's encourages all believers to acquire that virtue. Again, you're saved by grace initially, but you don't become wise in the Lord's ways just because you're saved. You have to strive for, you have to, you have to pursue that kind of knowledge. You have to have internal hunger to go deeper and be a pursuer of truth. See, if you, if you seek for this kind of knowledge, it's an antidote for spiritual stagnation. Are you spiritually stagnant lately? How much do you hunger to know more of God's ways in God, and the way to live out your life? I think of the Bereans in Acts 
who were defined as being no more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul was teaching were true. Again, do we pursue knowledge as a church, friends, in area of parenting? Do you seek after God's wisdom in parenting? Do you seek after God's wisdom in how to handle your finances? Do you seek after God's wisdom in dealing with conflict? Do you seek after His wisdom in how to defend your faith? And so on and so forth. The next uh, characteristic on the ladder, or the staircase, is that of self-control. That's the Greek word temperance. Really, in our language, the synonym, synonym would be restraint. Restraint. This is not allowing anything to master you. It's the ability to say no to yourself. The ability to say no to yourself. That's self-control. I like what Michael Green says. Like One of my commentators I read. He says, self-control is controlling your passions instead of being controlled by them. Isn't that good? In controlling, instead of being controlled by passions, you control them. I think Peter mentions this probably because of the false teachers in the book. Remember the false teachers, they have no self-control themselves. In chapter 2, verse 10, they're called indulgers in the flesh. Indulgers in the flesh. And if you read 1 John, you can see three categories of flesh being laid out there. But the thing about these guys is they also taught others to do the same. They taught them to pursue their own passions. And they said, you can, you're saved by grace, so now go and uh, pursue your own passions. That's okay with God. And Peter says, no, a Christian life is to be marked by self-control. The ability to say no. I, was, I got one this week. I got uh, tested in this category. So Janice and I, are, as you know, are looking at, well, many of you know, are looking to buy a trailer. And we've been shopping on Kijiji and different uh, dealerships. And we have a budget. And it's pretty fixed within a thousand bucks or so, you know, give or take. So I go to this trailer shop in Airdrie, and we get shown this trailer that's perfect for our family. It wasn't $1,000 above our budget, $2,000, $3,000, it was $7,000 above our budget. And I don't know what I was thinking, but in those conversations, I'm actually talking back and forth about what the possibility of buying this thing is. $7,000 over our budget. What's the buy <laughs> exactly. Zero, zero percent interest. And then I have to stop and give my head a shake and go, what are you thinking? Just be patient, be self-controlled, say no to yourself because just wait for the GG and the same type of trailer will come up for the price range you're looking for. But the flesh in the moment says, you need that, you deserve that, you should have that, and you, I gave me all these cash scenarios to well, actually, Denise and I did it. We came up with all the other kind of scenarios. If we sold this, bought this, sold this, we could probably do this. And I'm like, no, no, no. Let's just stick to the original plan. And we set it in December and not let the flesh rise up. It's no wonder in Luke, Jesus said this. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Because even though I consider myself a controlled person, that day I was kind of a little bit out of control. The money was easy flowing, at least I thought it was, in my own head. But self-control, church, is a daily choice. You have to deny yourself daily. You, you're not going to just be able to deal with that uh, once and be done with it. You will deal with that issue to the day you die. So, how are we doing, church? 
in the area of power. Thirst for power, authority. Self-control? Money. Self-controlled? Are we in debt? Always in debt, struggling to make ends meet? How about food? How about drink? How about uh, lust? How about anger? How about your goals? See, goals can lead to obsession. If I have a certain goal in life, even if it's a non-sinful goal, like being a better musician or being better shape, those can lead to obsessions where everything else in life that are important can get marginalized. Things that God would want me to do. It might be okay to pursue health goals to try to be the best athlete I can be or something like that. But what if I forsake my children on a regular basis to accomplish it? It's ability to say no. It's no wonder Peter has to tell us to be diligent. How about perseverance? Fourth characteristic. This is the Greek word steadfastness. Patient endurance. It's used a lot in the New Testament in reference to enduring hardships and trials. Hardships and trials. James 1.3 uses the exact same word endurance instead of perseverance. Consider it, all, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, produces perseverance, and so on and so forth. Those of you... Um, that have a half glass empty approach to life know how hard this is to persevere because life is tough and the natural tendency is to give up throw in the towel so to speak woe is me you know and Peter says uh, I'd like to have patient endurance in the midst of trials patiently endure it He wants us to grow and mature in this area so we can develop a temperate mind that is unmoved by difficulty and distress. Whether it be in the midst of persecution or in times where we're unfairly treated or things aren't going well. Think of Paul. Paul goes to Philippi. I think it was Philippi. This isn't in my notes. I double check my references. But I think he goes to Philippi. He preaches the gospel and the, the, um, he gets beaten unfairly, unjustly, over a lie. They made up a lie against him because they lost their revenues because all the people from witchcraft uh, uh, basically turned to Christianity and burned their books and then the next thing you know there was no more money to be made. He gets, un so a lie made up that gets him thrown in jail, a lie made up that gets him beaten unfairly, and then he's in jail in chains and he starts singing and praising God in, those, in that moment. Life wasn't fair for Paul that day. He was unjustly beaten, unjustly treated, but because his position in Christ is so strong, he patiently has so much steadfastness and perseverance, he's praising God and it leads to revival in the jail itself. His circumstances didn't dictate his position in Christ. He patiently endured and had steadfastness and perseverance in the midst of hardship and trial. And I believe this only comes from a complete trust in the Lord. See, if you're going to endure things like persecution and hardship, you have to let God take care of your reputation and your rights. 
You can't take matters into your own hands. You have to leave room for him to work. So in things like persecution, that's not retaliating, leaving room for justice. How about if you're in the area of finances, if you're in trouble, he's going, you're going to have to patiently endure and be steadfast because you're going to have to go through some hardships and trials to get, once you go his way, to get reorganized and re, rebooted to start being blessed by him. In parenting, man, it's tough in the first eight years, especially like with those little guys, little girls. It's, it's tough slugging. It's, it's hard going. But man, is his way right and good when you persevere and show steadfastness. I remember little Jackson there when he was a, just a little guy, two and three years old, and I went to my friend, <laughs> I went to my friend Jason's house, and I was sharing my my uh, how like because he had such a strong personality when he was young, and I was sharing things with him and. And uh, Jason and Michelle both said to me, Andrew, I used to always think, like they had boys as well, I said, I used to always think, Am I, are my kids ever going to get it? Are they ever going to get it? And I'm like, okay, good, thank you. At least I know that I just have to keep persevering. And he said, one day, it just switched. And I was like, that's exactly happened for me. It was like three, two, three years of just like tough slugging with Jackson every day. And now it's hardly any correction and hardly any issues in his life. Yeah, we still have stuff to deal with, but it's just so much better. But it's not because of me. It's because, I, it's because of steadfastness and patient endurance and going God's way with the things He's taught me. Fifth, godliness. The Greek word devotion. This all has to do with our behavior. How we live as Christians. The same word is used in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 6 and 9, which contrasts Lot's behavior to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And there, the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah are defined as ungodly, and Lot is defined as godly. It's the same word, root word for godliness. See, Peter again is saying it's not just enough to be forgiven of sin as a Christian mindset. We have to have a life that reflects that we understand that we've been, having, we've been forgiven as well. And that is shown and demonstrated through the way we behave and the way we live of the Christian faith. I listened to Chuck Swindoll preach this sermon. I like what he gave me one line that was worth the whole 30 minutes. He said this, Peter tells us that we are not to look godly, but we are told to be godly. <laughs> right? Know the difference? Looking godly is, doing, is like basically living out a religious, ritualistic life. Going to church on, going to church on uh, Christmas and Easter. You look good on the outside. He says, no, 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 you're not to look godly, you're told to be godly. That's reflected daily by denying yourself daily. And it's the way you live and behave. That's why Jesus himself said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. In 1 John, when John writes this in chapter 2, verse 3, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar. Ooh, that's a pretty strong word. And the truth is not in him. But they understood that obedience and beha- uh, faith with the Lord is reflected by a b- uh, behavior in the Lord. Now it's important to remember God's grace, grace and patience in this as well. Because He knows that spiritual growth takes time. He doesn't expect you in the first month of Christianity to look like someone who's been walking with the Lord for 20 years. We're not saying that. 
But what we are saying is this, that godliness needs to be part of your new normal as a Christian. I'll say that again. Godliness needs to be part of your new normal as a Christian. It's a process, but you have to have a mindset towards that's the end goal, that's the maturing process. I love what the... Uh, um, no, I'll just leave it at that. Never mind. Six, brotherly kindness. The word Philadelphia, which means brotherly love. It's funny because if you watch the Philadelphia Flyers over the last 30 years, they're not exactly known for brotherly love. But uh, brotherly love, the word Philadelphia. This is actually love within the Christian context, within the Christian community. Okay? That's an important distinction from love outside the Christian community. It's not that Peter is condoning loving everybody, because he's going to get to that soon here. But the focus here is inside the church, inside the community of believers, inside those who share the same faith with you. I mean, uh, for, uh, John says this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, now brother's Christian brother, not, not brother mankind brother, he is a liar. Ooh, another liar comment. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. God's saying this, or John's saying this, the way you treat your fellow brother in Christ, your sister in Christ, is proof of how you're connected to God. And remember in 1 Peter, two times, chapter 1, verse 22, and 4, verse 8, we're told to fervently one, love one another from the heart. Now, I remember the Greek word for that. It's the same word as used for an, um, a horse or an, or an animal, like this under, a muscle that's under strain. So a muscle that's stretched to its fullest capacity under tension. So think of a weightlifter or an Olympic athlete in their, in their final moments. That's the kind of love he's calling for. And of course he has to call for that kind, because you and I aren't perfect, and we're hard to, we're, it's hard to love one another. We have preferences, we have idiosyncrasies, we, you know, we are allowed to ref, uh, reflect those as part of our character. But it makes us favor other people in the church more than others because of those idiosyncrasies and preferences. Well, even if they sin against you too, which they can do, we have to be able to overlook those wrongs. And it takes a straining muscle kind of love to do that. But God says we have to do that. We have to love one another. Because if we don't, we make ourselves out to be a liar. So to accomplish this, then we have to overlook preferences, overlook wrongs, put others' needs above our own, and see the other as more important than ourselves. I'll leave you with a story on this one. So Dan and I, as you know, meet every Wednesday at, at, at Starbucks. He was sharing a story with me, a, a woman at church, uh, a couple weeks ago. This woman hardly ever speaks in the dialogue after the sermon, and she's fairly quiet. And uh, after a sermon, she asked Dan if she could actually stand up and speak. And nobody stands up and speaks either, really, hardly ever. Most people sit in their chair and speak. And Dan said to me, Andrew, I was like, oh no, what's she going to say? Like, this, like, I'm just like, kind of like nervous about what's going to come out of her mouth. Well, what happened was, she'd been dealing with some personal issues in her life. Struggling with some anxieties and some insecurities. But two women, or two, or I think it was two or three women at Pine Ridge had come behind her as she was working through these issues as a new, new member to Pine Ridge and it helped her really walk through these issues and it really stood by her and she just wanted to stand up and give thanks to the Pine Ridge community for their support in her life, helping her through these issues. 
She sat down and the church erupted in applause. It wasn't, Dan didn't say, let's all clap now. The church spontaneously erupted. Why? Because Pine Ridge didn't even know that those maybe two, three ladies, there's a hundred people there. They didn't know those two, three ladies were helping out this woman's life. But when she publicly thanked the church for their brotherly love, the church knew exactly what to do in response. It was their way of saying, thank you, God, for changing us. And they've made this place a place where people can come and feel appreciated and cared for. May that be said of our church as we continue to move forward. In John 13, 35, Jesus makes this very clear. When we operate that way, it's actually a witnessing tool. He says, by this, you will, if you love one another this way, by this, the world will know that they're connected to me. We want it when non-Christians come in our doors that they go, I, I don't have that when I leave this church. There's something happened. I don't know what it is or who it is, but something happens in this building that I don't get when I go back home, when I go to work and go out with my friends. What is that? Or who is that? And we just say, that's, that's the love of Jesus Christ flowing out of us. It's a witnessing tool. Seventh attribute, love. While brotherly kindness can be defined as Philadelphia, this love is agape love. The kind of love that God has for us. It's selfless. It's self-sacrificial. It's the kind that, you'll lay your life, that will lay down your life for someone else. And it's the kind that will require you to put your feelings aside. Because your feelings will tell you not to love in many instances like this. You, when there's someone you don't really care for who's mistreated you, and you're to love themselves sacrificially, your feelings won't line up with that. But God says, uh, that's the kind of love I'm looking for from you. You're to love your enemies. So this is not a feeling-based love, although it's great when they line up with feelings. This is an action-based love that's an act of the will. And it expects and requires nothing in return. You're not keeping score. You love me, I'll love you. You love me, I'll love you. This is no score, an act of the will, it doesn't matter how you feel kind of love. The same that God did for you when he sent Jesus Christ to die for your sins. <laughs> and I suggest he doesn't put this at the end of his letter or at the end of the attributes by accident. Because love is the crown of all virtues in the New Testament. It's the glue that holds all other virtues together. Colossians 3.12 so, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against one, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. See, it wasn't me coming up with that fancy blue analogy. That's, that's the Lord's doing in Colossians. Love, all these virtues that Paul lists, he says, put on love above all these, because that's the bond which keeps these together. Same in our list here. I believe Peter put this at the end for a reason. So we look at all these virtues. It's no wonder we need divine power to do this in, in verse uh, 3. And why it takes diligence on our part 
verse 5. It's not automatic in any of us. At the same time, there's a purpose behind why Peter wants us to apply these virtues in our lives. We pick this up in verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we look at what Peter's saying here in detail, I want to define um, useless and unfruitful. See, I know they're self-explanatory words, but the Greek word will give you a stronger word picture to understand these words. The word useless in Greek is used in the New Testament to describe someone who's idle or unemployed. You're unemployed if you're useless in the Greek term. The word unfruitful means to be without fruit. There you go. But better word that is also included is to the word barren. Barren. Those of you in the women's study who are doing Mark, remember Jesus cursed the fig tree? And what was the fig tree like? Had no fruit on it. It was barren. And it should have had fruit on it, but it didn't. There was an expectation of fruit, but there was no fruit. You see what Peter's saying now? He's saying, it's possible for a person to be a follower of Jesus, yet be spiritually barren and virtually unemployed. Isn't that strong? Stronger than just reading the first two words in English? Of course, the reverse is true. It's if one pursues these virtues and tries to increase in them and strives for them and honors God with their lives by going after these things in an increasing measure, one can be uh, non-barren and can have a great employment with Jesus Christ. You make a great employee if you go after these virtues. And from everything we've learned so far, it's not God's responsibility for which way we go. He's already given us everything we need to live those spiritual mature lives according to verse 3. He's granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's already given us all. But the onus is on us for what we're going to do with that gift. And Peter says this, as Christians, you shouldn't be content with the idea that you're forgiven, so all is well with Jesus. There needs to be a desire in us to grow and pursue Him. So what happens then when someone's a believer and yet is basically unemployed? How does this even happen? Either in one category of life, like maybe, or like maybe one or two of these virtues, or the entire list. Well, how does this happen? Well, verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That's a powerful statement. The reason why, according to Peter, we often remain stagnant, unemployed as believers is because we've forgotten what Jesus did for us that one gruesome day at Calvary outside the city walls of Jerusalem. We have forgotten what sin cost God. And what he's saying is that if you have a sensitivity to the past, you will be propelled forward in the future. If you're sensitive to what happened in the past at Calvary, you will be changed in how you live in the future.
As I've been speaking this morning, perhaps some of you have realized that in one or two areas, or perhaps even all areas, I don't know, that you, you and I have been virtually unemployed. So I thought it'd be appropriate to take a, a moment to talk about the crucifixion. He says, if you have forgotten these qualities, or if you don't have these qualities, you've forgotten the crucifixion. So it would be imperative now that we remember the crucifixion. The crucifixion was a horrific form of torture, so much so that according to John Kostenberger, no Roman citizen was allowed to be executed unless the emperor mandated it. Crucifixion was reserved only for non-Roman people. The only exception of Roman, if you were to be executed as a Roman, would only be if the emperor gave the go-ahead. You needed his permission, but it was reserved for non-Romans. That's how brutal it was. So that gives you clue number one. Clue number two, over time, Rome eventually removed it from its national policy as an execution method because it was de deemed too inhumane to do anymore. Why was it so inhumane? Well, after they'd flogged you, which would have left your intestines basically hanging on the outside, your veins basically destroyed and hanging on the outside of your skin, and your muscles striated and lacerated like hamburger. After that occurred, they would lay you on the cross, which wouldn't be sanded. Don't think of a bench like this, a rough two by four, or no, it would be a two by four, it'd be like a, a big post. The nails were driven through the hands and the feet, most likely through the wrists between the ulna and radius, not through the palm. These would become the anchor points for the human body in which re the real torture would become, because every breath became a game of survival. So you wouldn't die from pain in the hands and the feet, but from absolute exhaustion and dehydration and shock. because a person wouldn't be able to raise themselves into a position to take a deep breath. And so they would ultimately die of suffocation. Because when you're hanging down, you can't breathe, so you have to raise yourself up to get a breath. And then when you have a breath, you can't sustain the up, up stance because it's too fatiguing, so you have to go back down. So you're fighting for every breath as you go back up and down. And I learned something new in Israel on my trip there that I never knew before. Some crosses had a little seat, little, little tiny like seat, where, right where the, the bum would sit on the cross. Just to give the person enough place to anchor themselves to get a quick rest. That wasn't for their benefit. That was to make it worse. So they would be tempted to go get that so they could get a reprieve. It just prolonged the agony. I had no idea about that when I went there. And these didn't last minutes, church. These went on for hours and hours and hours. And you could last for two, three days on there, depending on your strength. A strong person could last three days. Jesus only lasted six hours because he was so beaten badly by the torture before. If he hadn't been flogged, he would have been up there for three days himself. He was probably a strong man. He was a carpenter. I don't know any carpenter that, like, that's like, like, pr like practicing carpenter that's like kind of wussy. They usually have this natural strength in them.
Are you finding yourself unemployed? Have you forgotten what he did for your Calvary? I'm not writing this to condemn you, to discourage you. In fact, I didn't even write this. Peter did. And he didn't write this to condemn or to discourage you either. He's just telling us what it is to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And what's expected of us. He's given us the grace, though, to give to turn things around. In His grace, we can turn things around. He's given us everything we need to turn it around. We just have to apply the tools He's given us. Sometimes we just need a little reminder and a kick in the butt to get us moving forward in these virtues. So what are the lessons? Each virtue is a lesson. I could probably just end the sermon right here and say that's good enough, you got it. But I'm just going to give you three that kind of cement the non-virtuous components of the sermon. They're all focused on eight and nine. Number one, it is possible to be a follower of Jesus and be unemployed at the same time. Even though God has given us the tools for spiritual growth, it's still up to us to use them. The reverse is true. It's possible to be a follower of Jesus and be fully employed at the same time. So you can, you can you know, be encouraged or be motivated or be convicted if need be. But the Word of God is, is, is true and we have to deal with it accordingly. Lesson two. Even though spiritual growth is a process, it's nonetheless expected. Otherwise, we wouldn't say, for if these qualities are yours increasingly, they render you neither useless nor fruitful in the true knowledge of God. There's an expectation when he says that, that they should be increasing in your life, not decreasing. There's two examples of this in the scripture that I can think of off the top of my head. Remember the Hebrews Christians? He says, you guys are infants in Christ, yet you should be, you're drinking milk, but you should be eating meat by now. There's an expectation you should be meat eaters, but you're still infants in Christ. So then in Christians, I don't know how he determined what was enough time to be mature, but the author of Hebrews thought there's enough time has been going by now that these virtues need to be applied in a greater, in a greater way. The Corinthian church, all the spiritual gifts in the world, Every single gift you could ever possibly want in a church is operating Corinth. And what does he say? He says, you're a babe in Christ. You're babes. Why? Because you don't love the brotherhood. And you don't love, period. That famous wedding quote, love is patient, love is kind, of everyone quotes at their wedding. When the Corinthians heard that, they weren't going, preach it, brother. That's us. They had their heads staring at their shoes with, their, with a covering over their head going, oh my goodness, I'm so embarrassed. That's not me. <laughs> That's exactly, when Corinth heard that, they were not, that wasn't a praise item. That was a, that was a conviction item, that list. And we read it at weddings like it's such a great thing. That was a rebuke, not an encur- like what was kind of an encouragement slash rebuke to them. When you think of the context, that's exactly what's going on. They're babes in Christ. They're taking each other to court. They're, they're, there's immorality going on in the church. They're sleeping with prostitutes. They're still dining in idols' temples and all sorts of things. And they're a noisy gong to the Lord because they don't love. So again, even though spiritual growth is a process and God's grace is involved in that, it's nonetheless expected as a love response to what He did for us at Calvary. Finally, 
Remembering what Jesus did for us in the past will be a critical anchor to moving us forward in a spiritual maturity for the future. Look back to go forward. Do not forget what he did for you and did for me that day in Jerusalem. I think that's why often, and I use the word advantage, but I don't mean it as an advantage, but work with me. Sometimes it's an advantage to come from a really rough background with a non-Christian home. Because when you experience the grace of God and forgiveness, it is unbelievable. And it's just this unbelievable. You can't believe you can be forgiven for such stuff and God loves you that much. And you become an amazing ambassador to Christ because you have this amazing testimony. Whereas when we grow up in Christian homes, again, it's a little tougher because we don't understand sin maybe always to the same degree because we maybe, maybe, maybe we've followed God's ways more carefully in sort of like the big categories of life that we would consider, like, you know, like being on the streets and so on and so forth. But let's remember, even if we're raising Christian homes, we have to look at sin the way God looks at it. You remember murder, that, that, that big list there, is in the same category as gossip for those who won't inherit the kingdom. But we think, well, because I, I was, you know, I never smoked and chewed and hang out with those who do, because I didn't do that, and all I do is gossip. I, I'm, I have a hard time understanding. You know, I'm good with God. I'm not according to that list. Murder and gossip are in the same category. Because you're slandering someone. You're murdering somebody with your tongue. So again, remembering the past is critical for moving forward in maturity in the future.